You're listening to Discovering Multifamily, where we discuss all educational topics in commercial real estate with an emphasis on multifamily apartment investing via syndication. And now your hosts, former NFL fullback Brian Leonard and Anthony Scandariato. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Discovering Multifamily. I'm your host, Anthony Scandariato with Red Knight Properties. And today we have a special guest with us, Fernando, Fernando Angelucci. And uh, we're going to talk about um, soft storage. We're gonna, first of all, we're going to talk about Fernando's story. Um, he's been investing in real estate uh, from a very, very young age. Um, you know, started his first business at the age of 19 while in um, college at the University of Illinois at Champaign. And uh, he graduated with the um, Ag Bioengineering degree in 2013. And then he went on to work at a Fortune 50 company and started investing in single family homes on the side. And then uh, by 20, he's 28 now, um, by the age of 23, he was able to replace his income that he was generating from his job and exited the nine to five life to begin investing in single family and multifamily, uh, which is what my show mostly focuses on. Um, but by age 24, he began investing in a different product called uh, self-storage on the value-add side uh, nationwide. So um, a couple of years later, he started getting into the syndication business, which is what we'll um, talk about here and, and how is it different from traditional multifamily? What are the pluses? What are the minuses? And I uh, really want to hear his take and appreciate him coming on the show. So welcome to the show, Fernando. Thanks, Anthony. Great. So talk to us about your journey a little bit and hopefully yeah. I gave you a little bit of justice, but um, talk to us about, I really want to understand your transition to self-storage. Yeah. So I, I guess I'll kind of move back a little bit. So um, I'm the son of two immigrants from Brazil to the United States and they kind of always ingrained into me the, you know, work hard, go to school, get good grades, get a job at, you know, a good company and stay there for 40, 45 years and retire the pension. You know, obviously that's not the way that the United States works anymore. Um, so I, I ended up picking up a copy of Rich Dad Poor Dad and that's when I knew I wanted to go into real estate. I didn't exactly know what assets. Um, so as soon as I graduated from college, worked for a large company and started doing wholesale transactions with single family homes on the side and was able to leave the nine to five life that way. Uh, very quickly then started scaling up from, you know, flipping single family homes, buying and holding single families and single family portfolios, then shifted over to buying and holding multifamily properties. And I actually moved back to Chicago. And uh, I don't know how many of your viewers are from this area, but Chicago has one of the most difficult um, tenant landlord laws in the nation, probably second to San Francisco. Um, it we have professional tenants out here that, you know, they'll, they'll play the game and they can stay in your property without paying rent for eight to 12 months if they know what they're doing. And so that's actually something that I experienced. I, I bought a property in a, in a C, let's call it a D area. Um, I had a professional tenant that got in, she didn't pay any rent um, from the time that we bought the property. Unfortunately, she came with the property and I was just getting tired of that. So I started looking for alternative investments where the, municipalities aren't stacked against you. And that's when I found self-storage. So one of the main reasons I like self-storage now over residential properties or properties where there's a, a warranty of habitation 
is self-storage is guided by lien law or property law as opposed to landlord-tenant law. So when you actually look at all the laws across the United States, everything is geared in favor of the investor. Um, there are no Im implied or expressed warranties of habitation. Um, all liability is carried by the customer, not by the owner of the facility. They have to carry their own insurance. You know, if, they, if the facility burns down or gets flooded, that's on the tenant for not having the proper insurance, not on us. Um, and then a whole other slew of, of things. I can jump right in if you'd like. Um, one of the things I really liked about it is it has a, historically a very high return. When you look at self-storage versus other asset classes, let's, let's look at the period between 1994 and 2017. The S&P... 500 during that time returned about seven and a half percent multifamily did twice as good as that they returned about 13.3 percent self-storage on the other hand actually returned 17.4 percent so that four percent extra return doesn't seem a lot but you got to realize that, that four percent is also compounding so if you invested a hundred thousand dollars in 94 in 2017 in the s p 500 that would be worth about half a million in apartment buildings, that'd be worth about 1.7 million, but in self-storage, that'd be worth a little over 4 million bucks. So actually twice the return of storage because of that compounding effect on, on the return. So then I was looking at, you know, I was looking at that and a few other asset classes that had other, you know, pretty high returns. I said, okay, so let's look at the risk side of it. So obviously the very first thing I did was, you know, look at all the recessions that we've gone through the last three major ones. And I specifically honed in on 07 to 09 because that was primarily affected uh, by and to real estate. Um, so in from 07 to 09, the S&P lost 22% of its value. Multifamilies on average across a survey of REITs, again, got to kind of take this with a grain of salt. Uh, these are all real estate investment trusts that were surveyed. They dropped about 6.7% in value. Self-storage only dropped about 3.5% in value. So again, it, the old adage of higher return means higher risk is not necessarily the case in this situation. Now, because of that low return, we also or that low risk, we also get offered really great leverage from the banks. Um, and I actually pulled up some, some Wells Fargo data as well as some in-tech solution data and the reason banks really like self-storage and give us really good terms is because it has the lowest default rates of any asset class, um, any real estate asset class that, that banks lend on. In the rare situation where the self-storage facility actually does default, the bank also experiences the lowest loss per default of any asset class. Um, and because of this, the, the banks are really fighting over each other to give us Loan, especially now in this kind of COVID style environment where, you know, some multifamilies were hit, you know, not too bad, but the real ones that really hurt the banks were hotels and vacation rentals. Those types of assets got slammed. Office buildings also got slammed pretty bad. Um, we just got a term sheet two weeks ago. Uh, we were in the beginning of June right now. We got a term sheet from a bank for a ground up development that was at 75% loan to cost at 4% interest. And we had three banks fighting over each other to give us those terms. Uh, when you look at the data, you know, self-storage on, on average is defaulting at a 0.04% rate across all banks surveyed. Whereas, and this is 2018 data, so this is not 
counting COVID. Whereas, you know, multifamily is at about 1.83, so that's about a 40 times higher default rate. Hotels is at 3.41, that's about a hundred times default rate of storage. Um, and office is at 7.5%. So, you know, that's a huge, huge margin, almost 200% or 200 times the default rate of storage. Um, so that's one of the main reasons I like it because I could buy them a lot easier with a lot less of my own cash in, into play. The other thing that I really liked is that it's a super fragmented market. It's still kind of a newer asset class, not in the sense of it's, it's just became you know, viable, but in the sense that a lot of people didn't know about it or they thought it wasn't a sexy asset, right? So because of that, there's roughly about 70,000 self-storage facilities in the United States. 18% of those are owned by the, the large REITs. Another 9% is owned by the top 100 operators. Um, so that means that 73% of all the facilities in the United States are owned by what I call mom and pop investors. They own one or maybe two self-storage facilities, and they're usually willing to sell them to us at really great cap rates. One of the things that I was having trouble with in the multifamily space is that all the cap rates are super compressed. You know, I'm seeing stuff going for four and a half, five percent, five and a half percent. On the self storage side, our last 18 months of acquisitions, which is, I believe, nine properties, um, we have an average day one cap rate of 9.7%. Um, and that's before we did our, our value add. When we value add them, we can usually add another 400 to 500 basis points. So when we exit these facilities, internally, we're at about a 14, uh, 14%, 13 to 14% cap rate. Um, Another thing I really liked about them is just the super low break-even occupancy. Uh, because there's not a lot of toilets and plumbing and electrical and HVAC running throughout the entire facility, you know, our, for example, I, I purchased a facility in the suburbs of Chicago. Um, when we purchased it, we had a break-even occupancy unleveraged at about 35% leveraged that break-even occupancy was about 81%. 12 months later, later after we stabilized the property, our leveraged um, break-even occupancy was 60, 64%. So I was able, if I had a 35% vacancy in the property, I'd still be able to make my debt service coverage ratios. And I wasn't able to hit those types of numbers when I was investing in multifamily properties. So those are what some of the reasons I really like. Um, the acquisition side of self-storage. The management side as well has some really great benefits. Um, like I said before, we're not guided by eviction law, we're guided by lien law, which means when someone comes and stores their stuff in our facility, they are giving us a lien on their property in case they do not pay the rent. So what happens is if they do not pay the rent, on the fifth day, I send out a notice saying, hey, you're, you're your rent is late and here's a late fee if you pay it. Um, if they still don't call back within two weeks, I put a circulation in the newspaper saying that I'm starting an auction. Another two weeks later, I actually hold the auction. They're all online now. So unfortunately, I don't get to do the, the cool storage war stuff that you see on TV. Everything's just basically digital. And within 30 to 45 days of that tenant becoming delinquent, I have already recouped all of my lost rent 
the buyer of the unit has cleaned out and turned the unit for me. And usually my new tenant is meeting that buyer of the auction property to move our new stuff in. So turnaround time, 30, 45 days, my total turn costs are maybe a hundred bucks. When I was doing multifamily properties, if I had to evict somebody, again, because I'm in Chicago, um, it would usually take me three to eight months, depending on how much that tenant knew about tenant law. And then they would usually leave with a lot of damage. On the low side, my turn would be, you know, two to 4,000 bucks for paint and carpet. On the high side, I had a $25,000 turn of an apartment unit because they took a circular saw to all the electrical cords in the wall, and then they poured concrete down the plumbing. And that just wrecked everything. Um, so there's not really those moving parts that a tenant can really mess up your asset on the self-storage side. Another thing I really like too is that there's a super high sticky factor in self-storage. So if I have a $150 unit, 150 bucks a month, and I increase the rent by $20, that's a 13% increase on the rent. But usually my tenants will not leave with that type of increase because it's not worth the two days of moving and the 500 plus dollars of renting a truck and lost wages and you know taking pto time for them to move all their stuff to another facility that's charging maybe five bucks less than me when you look at a residential unit you know let's just say around here 1500 bucks a month for a you know one or two bedroom is pretty standard if we were to raise the rent by 13 percent, that'd be almost a 200 dollars increase in rent so going from 1500 to 1700 I can almost say without a doubt that our tenants would move out if we increase their rent by $200 a month, right? So those are some of the reasons I really like it. Another thing too is that you kind of have a spread of income or a diversity of income. Not only are you collecting rental income, but you have all these ancillary profit centers that you can charge on as well. These are things like uh, you know, selling locks or selling tenant insurance and keeping a portion of the premium. Uh, moving supplies, packaging materials, uh, car, RV, and boat storage, uh, cell phone tower rentals, billboard advertisements, uh, wine storage, truck rentals, like moving truck rentals, private mailboxes. So there's all these other ways that you can uh, absorb uh, income while diversifying your risk. Really great stuff. So... Mm-hmm. It sounds like there's a lot of reasons why you transition from multifamily. <laughs> Let me ask you a question. Do you still own any apartments or are you completely out of the apartment game? I'm completely out. So I sold my last apartment, I believe, June of 2019. That was the last one I had. Great. And can you kind of talk about the syndication process? Obviously, yeah. you're involved with that. And how, how is it different? How is it similar than traditional apartment investment syndications? Yeah, so one of the things I notice about the self-storage side of syndications is that the transactions move up much slower. The sellers are usually the ones trying to slow things down, whereas on the multifamily side, especially with the, the sophisticated operators, they wanted you to close in 45 to 60 days, come with all your due diligence. You know, usually on my self-storage syndications, I have one going right now, it's a $12 million build of a ground up development. It's 136,000 square feet. That, uh, that facility, the land, we got it under contract six months ago. And our 
planned closing date, I believe, is beginning of August. So we have a lot more time to raise the capital, put the debt structures in place, and allow us to take the entire thing down in one transaction as opposed to having to take down the land or take down the property, then go get a construction loan to do the value add later just to keep the timelines going. So that's one of the things we really like. The second thing that I noticed too is that the the splits, because of the profitability, the splits are much different. When I was doing multifamily syndication, it was, you know, we would always see things like a 70% to the LPs, 30% to the GPs, 80% to the LPs, 20% to the GP. Or if we were taking in institutional capital as our LPs, they would get 90% of the deal and we'd get 10% and there'd be some hurdles, right? On the self-storage side, it's much different. Um, you know, we're usually expe- experiencing like 40% to the LPs, 60% to the GPs. And that is still having the LPs get returns that are higher than most people are offering the market, usually in the 20 to 25 or 20 to 28% return range to those LPs with such a low uh, portion of the equity split. Now, some people look at this as good and bad. You know, some investors are saying, hey, you know, I want the majority of the deal um, because that's, you know, how I'm used to doing it. But what people need to realize is the larger the portion that the LPs get, that means that there's a lower portion for the GP to give away if anything goes wrong. So say, for example, you're offering, you know, your investors an 80-20 split with a 18% IRR, if anything goes wrong and the GP has to reach into their equity to give to the LPs to get to that 18% hurdle, there's not a lot of cushion there. Whereas on, on the deals that we do with self-storage, you know, we have 60% of the equity that I can, I can peel off and roll off to the equity investors to make sure that they're hitting their IRR targets that we specified in the syndication documents in the PPM. Got it. So very different return structures. Uh, we'd love to learn more about it. Uh, we're going to wind down the show right now, Fernando. Um, how could people find you to learn more about it? Because we covered a lot on the show and I want them yeah. to get educated, which I'm sure you, you, you know, um, have a platform yourself that, that helps people learn more about self-storage. Yeah, yeah. We're, we're pretty easy to work with. Um, what we usually do is if anybody's looking to learn more, you can just contact me either through our social media channels or our website. You can just, my social media handle is always at the storage stud. So the storage stud, it's a clever name my business partner came up with. <laughs> um, you can also go to the storage stud.com. And then if you just want to learn more, shoot me an email uh, through those, those mediums or shoot me a, a text or whatever it is. And I could send you a bunch of presentations I've given in the past, how to underwrite them, how to find them, you know, why we do self storage over other assets, how they perform in recessions. So yeah, the storage stud, that's all you got to search. Awesome. The storage stud. And we'll provide links to the storage stud website and links to Fernando's um, LinkedIn and other social media platforms as well in the comments section of the social media for this podcast and also on iTunes. So uh, Fernando, really appreciate you coming on the show today. I would definitely love to have you on again in six months to a year and see how your company's grown and how the self-storage market has continued to grow because I'm of the opinion, I'm a fan of the two. Both We actually own some self-storage in conjunction with our multifamily yeah. properties. So it's a perfect mix of the two safest um, asset classes in real estate that um, you know we've experienced. So uh, yeah. again, really appreciate you coming on. I appreciate your time. Thanks, Anthony. Thanks, Fernando.